finishing out that tractor. I want to make sure we follow through with that. A lot of good stuff I've been putting into that for us to really chew on. But we're in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read the first, well, I should say verses 3 through 6, I believe. And you can follow along, starting at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest in others. Now look at verse 5 and 6. Actually, 5 through 7. Have this attitude, now make sure you're looking at this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. See that, guys? So, slide four. How's your attitude been this week? Hmm. You can tell it's going to get real quiet real quick. Think about it. How's your attitude been this week? More importantly, how's your attitude been towards God? Still throwing them under the bus when things ain't working out the way you want them to work out? Because you want them to work out the way you want to work out? And how's your attitude been towards other people? You know, your attitude towards God is really going to shape your attitude towards other people. Look at slide five. Some of these questions are just a rehash because I really want to draw you into the text. What would it be like if we stepped out on faith and we allowed God's compassion to flow through us? Think about it. What would be different in the lives of other people if we were to yield to the Holy Spirit? How about this? What if we humbled ourselves and we became vulnerable and we stepped into the lives of people who are struggling with the pain of a broken home or broken relationships? Hmm. What if we stepped out, we became vulnerable and spent time with people that are struggling with addictions? Oh, boy, it's getting quiet already, Doc. What if we humbled ourselves and we gave comfort, fellowship, affection, and compassion to those who are hurting? How would that put Jesus on full display in their lives if they saw it emanating from us? How, how by serving others, would that change us? How, how would it make us different at church? So let's dig into this text. Look at verse 5, slide 6. Have this attitude, this franete, this franeo, this mindset. Literally, have this attitude or keep thinking the same thing in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the NLT in slide 7 puts it this way. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Some translations Use the word mind instead of attitude. Mind is actually a very accurate word there because that's the word phroneo. 
So what did Paul mean when Paul used the word attitude or mind? And church, we've seen it before. Remember that word? There's phronea, slide uh, eight. So when Paul's using that word, or phronete, it means that that seed of all mental and emotional activity that's happening up there, what you're setting your affection on, which also involves your will, affections, and conscience. So think about it. What's you, what are you setting your affections on? Because Paul's telling us that it should be the same thing that Christ has it on. Our modern definition, slide 9, of that word attitude means a, a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something. Typically, that's reflected in a person's behavior. Mm. You see, your heart and your mouth is all revealed in your mindset, your attitude. Now, let's keep in mind that Paul was building up the verse 5 in the previous verses. If you remember, look at slide 10 and 11. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another's as more important yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. We're not going to dig into all that. We already did last week. So slide 11. What would be different in your relationships? How about, especially in the church, if you had the same genuine interest in others that you have in yourself? Oh, think about that. Because of that, that empty conceit, that kenosis, that, that selfishness. Man, what would, we, what would be different in our church if we had that same interest in others that we have in ourselves? Paul shared his heartfelt goal for this back in verse 2, slide 12. Make my joy complete. How? How, Paul? Be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. Be united in spirit. Be intent on one purpose. What did we learn? Paul wanted to see the spiritual unity back in this Philippian church. And this could only be accomplished through genuine humility, which is what Jesus revealed to us during his time here on earth. Notice back in verse 5, the admonition was for all of us. He says, in yourselves. So what does this mean, church? Hear me this morning. This is for each one of us to put into practice in our everyday life. Think with me this morning. What was shaping this young Philippian church? What was shaping their faulty values and what was shaping their mindset? And, you know, I don't have time to go into a history lesson, but it was really the Greco-Roman culture that the Jews were living in during that time, 2,000 years ago. That was really infiltrating into their mind. It was affecting their mindset, their thinking, all of that. And church, it's a scary thing because just like how the culture you and I live in is bringing a lot of the faulty values and mindset influences in our church today. So hear me this morning. The context of the first five verses in chapter 2 is a passionate appeal and an admonition from Paul to have the attitude of love, humility, selflessness, getting rid of the mindset of the selfish ambition, this self-centeredness, this self-absorbed, and think, think that thinking that's revealed in our behavior. So Paul gave the same admonition to this church in Rome. Look at slides 13 and 14. Look, it's Romans 15, 1 and 2. Take a peek at this with me this morning. Because it's the same thing that he shared pretty much in Rome. 
So what did Paul say? Now we who are strong, and you'll see that word dunatoi, it's a word where we get our word dynamite from. So see, now see, we who are strong and capable in our convictions of faith ought. That's that ophelium in ought. It's an obligation, it's a duty. To do what? To bear, to endure with, support with love and tenderness. Who? Who are we supposed to do this for? The weaknesses or the infirmities of those that don't have the strength. They have the adunamatoi. They're without strength. Not just to please ourselves. So now we who are strong, we ought to bear the weaknesses, the infirmities of those without strength and not just please ourselves. It can't be just all be about us. Each of us is to please, make happy his neighbor. Literally in the Greek there, his fellow man, okay? The plesion, the fellow man. Wow, how? For his good, for his benefit, to his edification. There's, it's an interesting word there for edification, that, that oikodedunime, that, that word is where we get our English word edifice from. What is an edifice? It's a building up of a building. Remember that? That's what an edifice is. It's just a building up. That's essentially what the word he's using there to strengthen and build somebody up spiritually. So those brothers and sisters that are weak in their walk with the Lord or they're struggling were to bear up. It's it, the, the Greek there in the word ophelium, it's an obligation. You have a biblical obligation from God to help those who are hurting, to bear with them, with their infirmities, the ones without strength, and build them up, strengthen them. And the NLT puts it this way. Slide 14, we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. So who were the weak that Paul's referring to? Now, we don't have time to unpack all this this morning. But the weak are the people that he was talking to back earlier in chapter 14 in Romans, and we'll eventually get there as we go through the book. These weak people, though, what's interesting about them were people who were grumbling, complaining, criticizing, who were just continually disobeying God's word. Think about that. Does any of those behaviors show up in us? Amen. Grumbling, complaining, being the critic. You know, I'm not as bad as that person over there. Did you see what they did? Oh, boy. So let me ask you some questions to help us digest what Paul's teaching here. Slide 15. Would any of us fall into any of those categories of the weak? Think about it. What The grumbling, the complaining, the criticizing, disobeying God. Any of us fall into those categories? Do we find ourselves grumbling, complaining, criticizing, speaking ill and horrible about other people and just continually disobey God's word? Part of the problem here, church, is a lot of people can spend a lot of time, and I've said it before a hundred times, they can spend a lot of time on their iPad and their cell phone and they can swipe, swipe and Instagram and they can play hours and hours and hours of TV. But why is it that they can't give God five or ten minutes a day in his word? Man, they can watch the fall. They're all excited about buying wings, getting fat on the land here, watching the Super Bowl coming up. But man, say five or ten minutes with God, no. 
And what happens is if we don't have that mindset that we've been learning about, what replaces it? The worldly mindset. I'm entitled to. I'm going to sit on my sofa and just enjoy life. They're all, everything's all about entitlement. So think about it. Do we then find it easy to criticize others? Put the spotlight on that because I don't want it to be on me. Forget Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God. Try me, O God. See if there's any evil way in me. But it's easier to take that spotlight and put it on that person over there so it's not reflecting on me. Do we know better but still continue anyway to disobey the Lord, yet we still want all the blessings and goodies from Him? Oh, boy. So let's look at uh, two theologians once more. This will be Wayne Mack and William Barclay in slide 16 17. So I want to say, okay, Dr. Wayne Mack and Dr. William Barclay, what comes to your mind when you look at the text and you want to unpack for us what it means when we use the word humility? What does it really mean? Well, they say this. Humility then consists in an attitude wherein we recognize our own insignificance and unworthiness before God. Is that true about us? Do we recognize our own insignificance and unworthiness before God and attribute to Him the supreme honor, praise, prerogatives, rights, privileges, and worship, devotion, authority, submission, and obedience that He as God alone deserves? He goes on to say it also involves a natural, habitual tendency to think and behave in a manner that appropriately expresses this attitude. In other words, the attitude of humility is always seen in humble actions. Think about it. If we surveyed 15 or 20 people that know you or know me, would they say that, hey, that person has a, an attitude of humility in their life? You see, it, it means, church, having a servant's mindset and always putting self last, esteeming others as more important than ourselves which is, again, contrasting counter against a culture that wants the opposite of that. William Barclay says it this way, Humility comes from knowing ourselves just who we really are. Do you know who you are? Think about it. Who do you tell yourself who you are? You see, it, it comes from an honest appraisal of ourselves. And it takes courage to look at ourselves. It takes honesty to see ourselves as we really are. What does the scripture say? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. In 1 John 1, 9, doesn't he say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to continually forgive us of our sins and continually cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Do you see, your, your, your growth comes through humility. And when you come clean with God and you, you hold yourself accountable to others that are spiritually mature, you grow. The Holy Spirit changes you because the Holy Spirit never works independently from the Word. See, humility begins to come when we honestly face ourselves and admit our own self-centeredness. That's hard to do, isn't it? Self-centeredness weakens and limits relationships because if it's all about you serving me, you destroy that relationship especially in marriages. Humility reaches its heights when we lose our lives in the cause of Christ and welfare of others. 
You know, it's interesting. The more you serve others, the more your problems don't seem all that bad. I found that in my own life. Christian believers must forget self. So then, the very mindset that was in Jesus is the exact same mindset for you and I to follow. Amen? How about slide 18? Moving forward, who although he, that's Christ, existed, who parkhan, who he existed in the form, that morphe of God, he did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Paul really is going to unpack what humility really looked like fleshed out through Christ here. The NLT says, though he was God, because Jesus is fully God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now, I want to really take a few minutes and tease this apart, because this is really, really important for us to understand. Let's carefully tease it apart. Slide 19. First, he says, he existed in the form of God. Look at that word, existed. That's the word huparchon. Hupo, meaning under, to place under. Arche, meaning beginning. Arche, you were going to see that in a few minutes, speaks of a continuance of a previous state. Being what you were before. And you're going to learn that Jesus never stopped being God. Huparchon, to place under. Arche, beginning. So that word existed has the idea of a continuance of a previous state being what he was before. Why is this important for you and I to understand? Church, hear me this morning. You listening around the world, hear me this morning. This tells us that Jesus the Christ was in continuation of what he had been and always been before his humanity. He never ever stop being God. Don't let any false church or prophet make the claim to you that he's not because the text is telling you right there in the English and the Greek. Jesus continued to be God even when he became a man. I like how MacArthur says in slide 20. It stresses the essence, the essence of a person's nature. That which is absolutely unalterable. Now look at it. Unalterable inalienable and unchangeable. Jesus Christ eternally and immutably, that means never changing, existed and will forever continue to exist in the morphe of God, the form of God. Paul says that, slide 21, in the form of God. That's the word morphe. What does that word mean, the form of God? What did it mean to Paul when he penned it, church? Morphe is an outward manifestation of an inner reality. He's speaking here of Jesus' pre-existence. So what do we see? We see in Jesus the outward display of his divine substance. What did Paul tell the church at Colossae? Slide 22. He is the image, the icon, meaning the exact image of the invisible, the aura too, unable to be seen, something that is invisible you can't see. So he's the image, the exact image of this invisible, unable to be seen God. He is the prototokos, the firstborn over all creation. What does this mean? Jesus the Christ is the perfect, absolute 
accurate image of God. That's what it says right there. Jesus is the very representation of God in every respect. An image shares the reality of what it represents. See, Jesus didn't just become the image of God. He's always been that from all eternity past. That's <coughs> what the text says. Hear me this morning. God is invisible, unable to be seen, but Jesus reveals God visibly to the world. He is the exact image of God because He is fully God. And I want to take a little quick jaunt through the book of Hebrews to bring out this point. Look at slide 23 and 24. Amen. God, Theos, after He spoke long ago, how? To the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So long ago, the way He spoke was through the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways. Look at verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. God spoke the world in existence through His Son. That's what it says. He is the radiance of His glory. He is the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He, that's Jesus, had made purification of our sins, He did something incredible. Unlike the priest in the temple, He sat down. His work was completed. The blood was shed. The sin debt penalty has been paid in full. And he sits down at the most honorable place you could sit, at the right hand of the majesty on high. That should blow your mind. That same God came down to earth for you and me. I don't deserve it. How about you? The NLT puts it this way. Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance and through the Son, He created the universe. You know, you can spit, I think it's like 300 of our earths into our Son, and He spoke it into existence. Do we really have the proper fear of this incredible God? Amen. You see, the Son radiates God's own glory, and He expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. And when he had cleansed you and I from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majesty, the majestic God in heaven. So let's tease this apart a little bit. He is the radiance of his doxa, his glory. Jesus is the radiance. What comes to our minds when we think of this? The Greek word is apogosma. It means brightness. It means a light radiating from a source. So it's radiating from Jesus. In fact, Noah Webster, in his very first dictionary published in 1828, says this about it. Brightness, shooting in razor beams, brilliant or sparkling luster, vivid brightness. So 
this radiance of his, this Jesus is the radiance of his glory. Think about that. What does it mean? Church, Jesus is the unmistakable, clear, visible revealing of God's glorious presence. The only radiance that reaches from God the Father is mediated to you and I through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Think about it. Just like the rays from the sun light and warm the earth, Jesus Christ is this active, glorious light of God shining into the hearts of men. Think about it. And then he doesn't stop there. Not only is he the radiance of his glory, he is the exact representation of his nature. Exact representation. Scripture's clear, unmistakably clear. That's the word character. It means an exact copy. In, in, in those days, when they heard that word, they're thinking of an impression made by a die, stamp, or seal. You know, that seal, that wax seal that was roped onto the tomb was made with a die. They knew exactly who sealed that tomb. You see, they would heat up the wax and make the impression in the wax, which is a die or a seal. Here's something else that word also means, which is incredible. Not only does it mean an expression, an impression made by a uh, die, stamp, or seal, it also refers to something else. An engraving tool or the person who does the engraving can also be called a character. So the Greeks of Paul's day spoke of character as these enduring marks or impressions on the soul. The qualities and features that distinguish one person from another person. So the best way I was able to put this together would, would be like this. It is like the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, He is the engraver and the tool he marks your soul and my soul with is the Word of God. That's the best I could put together. Powerful God that we have serve. How does that flesh out for you and I today? How do we, we exegeted, we went down into the text, we dug out the nectars of it. How do we now apply it to our lives so we can walk in it today? Think about it. Jesus the Christ bears the very stamp of God the Father's nature. Jesus is the perfect, personal imprint of God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews states that Jesus is the exact representation of His nature. So there are the three things that we saw in that text. We don't want to underlook, overlook this. So what does it mean that He is the exact representation of his nature. What does he mean by that word nature? It's not like our English word nature. I'm not thinking about, you know, the birds and the plants and flowers. He's talking about a different nature here. And I don't want you to overlook it. You see, the word that is actually used here in the original language is the word hypostasis. Two Greek words that come together that make it indistinguishable about what he's talking about here. I hope you're hearing me this morning. Don't waste this at all. Again, hupo meaning to place under. Stasis means to stand or set something in place. 
So the nuance of the Greek is strong here for this word because it carries the idea of this foundation, this substance, this assurance. Spirit Zodiatus, slide 28, says this. Substance, what really exists under any appearance, reality or essential. So he's the exact representation of his nature. How do we put this all together? What can you and I glean from this text and understand for your life and my life today about this Jesus? Because I'll never get tired about talking about him. Jesus Christ is 110% identical in substance to God the Father, and he is fully God. He is not, as some cults say, a created being. He has always existed with the Father, and in all of his attributes and abilities, Jesus is 110% exactly like the Father. So how do we flesh it out? Scripture is a self-authenticating book, so what does it say? Look at slide 29-30. What did Jesus say? He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Remember Jesus talking to Philip in John 14, 9? Jesus said to Philip, Philip, listen, Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Philip, listen, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Scripture, validating Scripture. So then, church, <clears throat> to see Jesus is to see exactly what the Father's like. Let, let me bring one more scriptural reference out. Slide 31. I don't want you to miss this either. Uh, Dr. Carter told me to put the Greek up there for you, so I'm going to quiz you on it when we're done. Ain arcane. Hey, ho, lagas. Meaning what? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Why did I put it up this way? I want you to see exactly what they saw when this was penned by John 2,000 years ago. The ain arcane, hey, o logos, kai, o logos, ain prostan theon. I want you to see it there. Very important scripture. It's foundational for us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So that in the beginning, slide 32 and 33 and 34. That in the beginning, what is it doing? It's taking us clearly back to the opening words found in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We didn't get here by some big bang theory. You didn't slip out of a slimy pot with a little euglena feet or anything like that. You were created in the very image of the God. Amen. That word beginning is very important. Okay, that word beginning, arcane, means source or origin. Okay, when it was penned, the Greek understanding of the word arcane means source or origin. Jesus, who is called the Lagos or the Word, is the originator and source of all things. Okay? That word is the word lagos. Okay? What does that mean? Now, later on, I didn't get time to get through all of it, but in 14, if they identify the lagos as nothing other than Jesus Christ. 
That's what that word means when it's talking about Christ. So that word logos, you see there. What does it mean? Well, to the Greeks back in John's day, when the Greeks heard the word logos, they're thinking this. The principle of the universe, the creative energy that generated the universe. Now, both the Jews and the Greeks back 2,000 years ago in John's day associated that word with beginnings. So John's concept of the word is far superior to the Greeks' understanding of the word. For John, that word or logos isn't some principle, but a living being who is a source of all life. He is the logos, the divine person. So when you see that word arcane, think about source origin. Okay? Now, slide 36. I'm trying to get you through this. Notice the word was. Now the word was, you're going to notice if you read your John 1.1, 1, 1, is used three times in that text. Or if you count verse 2. Okay? Now it's, was to us is like a past tense word. It's like, oh, he was with her later, you know, yesterday. But that word was is a very important word. It's not like our 21st century thinking of it. So we're not going to isogeet. Okay? So that word was is the word amy. It means existence or I exist. You see, that word was, now listen, don't miss this. That word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? That's John 1, 1. So, in the beginning, I existed. I'm the word. I existed with God the Father. So it speaks of a continuous action in the past, which shows you and I that Jesus was already in existence before the universe was even created. From all time. There was never a time when God the Son did not exist. Okay? That's the word amy. Remember what Jesus says before Abraham was? Ego ami, I am. Okay? So it stresses that the word, the logos, Always existed, and there was never a point in time when he did not exist. So how else do we back that up? Slide 37. Look at John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego ami, I am. That word am is the same Greek word that you found for those words was in John 1, 1. Exact same word. What do we conclude? There was never a time when the word was not. Now, John is teaching us the word of Logos existed before creation. And he's making it very clear to all of us in the text that the word was not created, but the word has always existed with the Father. He's also before time. Don't forget that. Then he says the word was with God. And we're almost done. Slide 38. The word was with. We see that word with, right? Was with God. It's pros ton. Theon. Very, very important there. That word pros, the word was with God, speaks of a forward direction. If you're saying forward, they're saying pros. It speaks of this forward direction. So I want you to think about it. You have God the Father here and God the Son here, proston Theon. What are these two? What's going on here? They're facing each other because it's forward facing. And, and they're engaging in intelligent communication. And they're constantly moving towards each other in this intimacy. Because it's one God. Amen. Do you understand that? Thanks, That's prostantheia. 
Hear me this morning. Imagine that intimacy, that relationship. The Father and the Son facing each other, constantly moving towards each other. The scriptures are clear, church. Jesus Christ from all eternity has always been with the Father. He truly is God the Son, and He always will be. And really, the way that that's rendered in the original Greek was, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. That's the actual rendering in the Greek. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, finishing up back in Philippians 2, listen, I only have about 24 more pages. You'll be out of here by 4 o'clock. Now, we're almost done. We're almost done. So Philippians 2, back in, in verse 6, he said, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now think about that. Let's make sure we understand what's, what that means. Did not regard equality with God. That word regard, didn't, he didn't counter consider. Hegeme is the word. You know, to prize highly, give priority in your thoughts, equality. Um, it's a very interesting word here. So he says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I want you to think about this, this other word here. It's actually two Greek words. This word equality. Think about that word equality. He did not regard, he did not give priority in thoughts, equality to be with God. That word is actually ene isa. Ene meaning I exist. Isa mean being equivalent in number, size, and equal. So what are you saying here, Pastor Jack? What are you hitting us with all this? Well, I know you were all great students and you remember the isosceles triangle, right? The isosceles triangle, all three sides are 100% the same. If this is three inches, this is three inches, this is three inches, okay? So equal on all three sides, equivalent in all three sides. So now think about that. Slide 40. Jesus, let me, let me try to flesh this out for you here. Jesus was Isa, or already co-equal with existing, that's Ane, I exist, with God, the Son, with the Father, in every way. So he already had all the rights, privileges as God, which he will never lose. He does not have to grasp or seize or take something by force that he already had and possessed. Why would he have to take something by force that he already possessed? Okay? He's Ene Isa. He is equivalent, 100% co-equal with the Father. So think about it. What, what is this telling us? Church, listen, we see here that Jesus did not exploit his power or cling selfishly to his position as God the Son. He, he wasn't giving priority in his thoughts, viewing his position as the eternal Son of God to be used for his own status or personal gain. He didn't need to do all that. That's ridiculous. What did he do? He emptied himself. The echinosin. What does it mean if something's empty? It contains nothing. Or to divest oneself of rightful dignity by descending to an inferior condition. Look at that again. He emptied himself. What is, what is being said here? Jesus was divesting himself of the rightful dignity by descending to an inferior condition. That's the humility that he's modeling for you and for me. Okay? But church, nowhere in the entire 66 canonical books of the Bible did Jesus ever stop being the Son of God. Okay? So this begs the question, 
What did he empty himself of? Staying in the context of what Paul was leading up to, we get a picture of this. Jesus emptied himself of this, slide 42. He emptied himself of his advantage, his privilege, his choosing not to assert his divine rights as God the Son. He emptied himself of the divine glory and praise that he alone deserves. Remember what Jesus said the night before he was arrested? Slide 43 and we're done. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. Jesus said this. Now look at slide 43. This is the cement right here. Father, Padre, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son might glorify you. And then verse 5 in John 17. Now, Father, Doxa, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you. What does it say? I rest my case. Case closed. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is fully God and He is fully man. Listen to me this morning and I'm done. There's a man in heaven. The God man. Interceding for you. That blood that He shed 2,000 years ago continually will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's my question for you as I close. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know I, I, I know I shared a lot. I had to get it out there. You need to understand that Jesus is fully God and never stopped being God.